Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Well, the last time we were in Nehemiah 4, and the title of the message was The D Word. Like all these names and words in society we're not supposed to say. But D, standing for discouragement. As we go through last Sunday, this Sunday, next Sunday, you know, there's this project, this awesome project of building the walls of Jerusalem to protect the temple and the city and the faithful from invaders and all kinds of attacks and such. And all of a sudden, discouragement starts coming through the camp. And this is, boy, what a parallel with spiritual, uh, the spiritual lives that we live as well. And today, the title is, The Project Takes a Detour, because it does. Because, listen, this is a work of God, but there's some serious problems. There's fellow believers that are enslaving each other economically, and we're going to look at that. And boy, 2,500 years ago, the book was written, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be pulling out a whole bunch of applications that we can have today, and that's why God's Word is called the Living Word, because it affects us today. And as we go through this, you know, you may be going through something in your life that's discouraging. And, you know, take heart because all of God's people from the very beginning, we're to follow God, but this isn't our final resting place. So we're, this world is fraught with sin and conflict and demonic intervention and all that kind of stuff. So I really want to encourage you as we go through this to, you know, to look at some of this and maybe even make an application in your own life. And certainly, if you ever step up to serve the Lord and you get involved in ministry, it becomes even more um, challenging and <laughs> looking for a good word. Sometimes when you're in ministry and you're, you're dealing with people's lives, you're dealing with their marriages, you're dealing with suicidal tendency, you're dealing with those that are struggling with addiction. And I mean, these are life or death situations. And the devil is always looking to try to take that work apart so he can destroy mankind. It's almost like it reminds me... <laughs> Years ago, and I used to play this game called Whack-A-Mole. You know what I'm saying? There's these little pretend gophers that would pop up, and you know, if they, too many of them popped up, you'd lose the game. So you had to take this like rubber hammer and, and whack them down. And sometimes when you're really in ministry and, and the Lord is, is in it, um, you see these challenges come up. But similar to Nehemiah, God will empower us. If we really desire to serve the Lord, He will empower us to to be successful in a God-successful way. Not to take credit for ourselves, but to be used as a willing vessel. So let's jump in, verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 5. It says, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Now, this isn't from the outside. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain for them, that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are brought into slavery already. It is not in our power to redeem them for other men have our lands and vineyards. This is a sad situation. You know, we see the, the wall going up. We see this great project. And in chapter 5, we see the conjunction, 
and. There's victories and there's setbacks. Now we know that chapter delineations came centuries later, so this was understood as one complete thought, which it should have been. So the wall is being built and new problems are arising. Now what's going on here? What's the situation? Well, let's look at the complainants and then look at the complaints. Okay, the complainants, number one, the people and their wives are crying out against their Jewish brethren. Now, in that culture, very different from our culture, the women would allow their husbands and their sons to fight for the family. The fact that it says that the wives were also crying out is remarkable. This situation is desperate. And the wives, mothers, were losing their children into indentured servitude or outright slavery because of economic conditions. And the worst part is that their fellow Jews were exploiting them. So let's look at the fourfold complaint. Number one, there's not enough food. There's a famine that was causing scarcity. And when the supply, <laughs> I took a lot of economics in college and I, I kind of chuckled as I'm going through this. I'm like, it's going to be like a little bit of an economics level or lesson. But as the the supply goes down and demand goes up, what happens? Prices go up. We have what's called inflations in economics. Two, some went into debt to buy the food. So you have a, a finite amount of the money supply, so the demand for money goes up in the form of loans. And what happens? It drives up interest rates. Right? Simple economics. But as, as God's people... We could tweak the laws of economics to show compassion, and they weren't doing that. Boy, it's so easy for people to say, well, everybody else is doing it. Well, this is just the way it is. Sometimes God calls us to break that mold because we are believers. We are compassionate. Three, some people took out loans in order to pay the Persian monarchy for their exacted taxes for being vassals. Remember, they were a conquered people, so... The Persian kings come in, it's from a remote place, and they send their enforcers to pay the, the taxes. So you have usury, which is one thing, okay, excessive interest on loans within the Jewish community. Then you also had uh, exacted taxes, which is outside that community, which is part of the Persian monarchy. So these people are getting whacked twice. Four, some had to sell their children into slavery or an indentured servitude. They couldn't pay back the loan, so if they had kids that were of working age, um, the person said, well, I'll take your kid and have them work on my farms. And that's what happened. So this is what they were experiencing. Very sad. Poverty, economic depression, inflation, high interest rates, and to make matters worse, it was from their own countrymen. You know, I, I, it's only because it's amazing. You know, what last Sunday we talked about, you should get the message if you weren't here, about uh, how did, you know, what does the Bible say about us protecting ourselves and protecting the families? And just as I was going through that, I got a periodical from uh, far-reaching ministries and the civil wars that are going on in different regions of Africa and how the, the, uh, the chaplains had to take up the sword, they had to take up the rifle and fight for the women and children. It's amazing. As I'm c going through the message, I go to my mailbox, it's there. This is how God works. You know, so now I'm, I'm covering this. Hey, you can't pay your, your money? Here, you got young daughters and sons, we'll take them. Then I'm reading the article about an Amish country, the guy who was found with all these boys and girls, they were teenagers, that he took from people because he helped them get out of their financial situation, and one of them he fathered children with a 14-year-old. Um, 
we can cover this another time, but I'm not a big fan of cloistered communities. I think there's just nothing but problems in those situations. Uh, so, and I'm, I'm reading this, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so what does God's word say about this? Let's go in through some bullet points. We can look at Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23 and 24, Exodus 22, and I'll give you three main bullet points that speak to this situation. Number one, God's word says, law says, if someone becomes poor, even if it's a stranger, you should help them. <laughs> you know, you almost say like, duh. Unfortunately for some people, they don't have that level of compassion. So God had to put it in his law, and if you didn't, you were breaking his law. People still broke his law. So person is, is suffering, they fall into poverty. The Bible even says, if possible, and they're destitute, take them in. They might have lost their home and they're wandering on the streets. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Two, there were strict laws against charging interest, and interest was forbidden if a person was borrowing money for food. Seriously. And I, I say this a lot. Poverty in the United States is bad. I've dealt with a lot of poor people. But poverty in other countries is devastating. And people just literally die from not having. So when we look at this, you see someone destitute. How do you charge them interest? Again, the first law says help them. Give them food. The second one says whatever the loan is for, if it's for something that their basic needs, you can't charge them interest for it. Three, you were not allowed to sell a fellow Jew to slavery because they couldn't pay you. The worst case situation was that the person could work for you to pay off the debt. And remember, it was an agrarian society, mostly. They would work for you, and then they would pay off the debt. And if the debt was too great, on the year of Jubilee, which was every 50th year, servants were freed, debts were forgiven, and lands were returned to original families. See, what does God's law says? That he didn't want a perpetual class of poor, that families just couldn't get out. My grandfather was poor, my father was poor, I'm poor, my kid's going to be poor. God said there's laws enacted so that at every 50 years, the, blow, the, you know, the blowing of the shofar in the year of Jubilee, it was pretty awesome. He, it was like the reset button, right? So everybody had a chance to make it. God's a fair God. Now, Nehemiah morphed from a wall builder to a security leader, we see in four, to a social reformer. But hey, God gave him the equipment, didn't he? Now remember, let's remember who Nehemiah was in verse, uh, chapter 1. He was a cupbearer. In the comfort of the king's palatial mansion, he did very simple things and didn't have a whole lot of skills and certainly didn't have the skills for this project, but God empowered her. And I hear Christians say, I can't. I can't. Don't, don't say you can't. If this is in the Lord's will, he will empower you, empower you so you can. Sometimes unbelief hamstrings us. I've said this before we get out the door. We're already ham. It isn't anybody else. It's us. Don't have that attitude. God, you and God could do anything. So here he fights and steps up to the plate to fight for justice. And you know, we may be called on to do the same thing at times. Okay. Now the irony is that the wall of Jerusalem was a good thing. It could have been one or two things. Number one, it could have been and should have been ideally an edifice to protect the inhabitants from outside enemies to provide security. But these problems, if they weren't dealt with, could make the wall something vastly different. It could have kept the oppressed inside like a prison camp. Right? You see the 
the, the different sides of the same coin. Nehemiah wasn't about to let that happen. And you know, life can be like that for us today. You know, we can we determine what, what tone is set in our lives. Now, our lives can be a life filled with stability and good choices or a prison of our own making. It's our choice. It's our choice. And I submit to you, when we follow the Lord's way, you know, you have the, uh, you have the, the former, which good choices and stability. Let me continue, verse 6. And I, Nehemiah speaking about himself, I became very angry. He doesn't hold back about his emotions. I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. So Nehemiah gets angry. Now, some people mistakenly say, well, you, you can never be angry as a Christian. Uh, Ephesians says, uh, chapter 4, it says, be angry and do not sin. The question is, what do you do with that anger? The question is, what is the root of that anger? Okay? If we're always getting angry because somebody slights us, it's probably a self-centered angry, anger. But there's an anger, a righteous anger, when you see injustice, it doesn't affect you. You could just walk by it. But it bothers you, and it's rooted in compassion for somebody who's being wronged. Okay? Verse 7, after serious thought. So Nehemiah doesn't go out like a hothead. <laughs> He's, you know, how many times have we gotten anger, angry and thought, I shouldn't pick up the phone, I shouldn't send that email, <laughs> I just need to relax a little bit, I need to talk to somebody and calm down, pray, before I go acting. Because then we look foolish. Now, we were in the right, but now we look like we're in the wrong because we said or did things that really doesn't comport with our walk. So, he gave it some thought, he gave it some prayer, and he strikes the right balance. See, he doesn't do too much, but he doesn't also do too little. And today, some see suffering and see struggle, and they do nothing. Maybe it's fear of rocking the boat. Um, and, and again, be believers today are not, not immune from this type of stuff. Sometimes the attitude is, oh, that's pretty bad, but hey, it doesn't affect me. It's not me. They're not coming after me. So Nehemiah first rebukes the leaders, or excuse me, and the lenders, and then calls the assembly to address this specific issue. Now I have to digress for a minute because I, I just find humor in the difference between their culture and our culture. Do you know that today there's, in New Jersey, that there's <laughs> one attorney for every three people in New Jersey? That's the statistic. You know, today we, we can't solve our problems. You know, we can't sign a contract and that's good. We can't deal with issues. We always, we always have to get an attorney. And there's a lot of untrustworthy people out there, and it's very sad. You know, I kind of laugh. They call an assembly, and they're, it's almost like <laughs> these guys, they, they do the right thing, maybe under pressure and shaming. But today, it would be a class action lawsuit. <laughs> and the lenders would, would look at them and say, well, don't say anything unkind towards me, because I will sue you for defamation. So you could see both sides today in this situation, how they would handle it versus how they handled it back then. Now let's remember, Nehemiah is an outsider. Remember, he comes, and yeah, he's on the auspices of the king. But he doesn't know what to expect. All of a sudden, all these problems start popping up. He's a Jewish guy in captivity, grows up there, goes back to Jerusalem, probably doesn't know anybody because he probably never visited there and certainly didn't grow up in Jerusalem. Uh, but he has compassion for the plight of his people. So he's an outsider, but he takes on the establishment. He takes on... Uh, those that, or, or he, he advocates for those who don't have a voice. And check it out. Let's look at, I'm just going to have to make the, the, the parallel to American politics. 
you know, and, and walk very carefully and circumspect. But I just think that both parties are, especially on the federal level, they're both le mostly corrupt. I'm sorry. I think they've completely forgotten how to represent people. They more represent themselves. But Nehemiah is, he's a governor. He's a politician. Okay, he could have easily gone down to Jerusalem and saw what was going on and struck a deal with the leaders and lenders and done a little shakedown. Hey, you give me a cut and I'm not going to make a big stink about this. I'm not going to tell the king. Right? I mean, is it done today? Sure, it's done today. But he does the opposite. He puts himself aside. He could have aggrandized himself. He could have lifted himself up. He could have been living in the lap of, of luxury. But he does the opposite. Right? He does the right thing. Verse 8. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what, do you, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even to this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. You, you ask the question, why didn't this happen before? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen that aren't right, and it could be, um, there could be decades of you know, those just looking the other way, and I'm not going to get involved. I'm not sticking my neck out. Nehemiah said, yeah, I'm going to stick my neck out. This is wrong. So he does this. And basically what he says to them is a few things. He said, you know, we worked hard. The, the Jews were sold, uh, well, they were sold into slavery. They were expatriated. They were exiled. And God did a great work of sending them back to their homeland. But a lot of the Jewish people cared for their Jewish brethren and put them in homes and got them going and got them a job. And he's basically saying, you know, we redeemed them. Well, God did the heavy lifting. They were redeemed from slavery. And we're we're going to put them back? Our own people? What, what kind of madness is this? Verse 9, he says, don't, and I'm paraphrasing, don't you fear God? Isn't this a terrible witness to the unbelieving nations? You guys are a people of God. You guys are enslaving each other. Well, so how are the outside world going to see that as a good witness? They're not going to, okay? In verse 10, he basically says to them, we're, we're all going to lend money. We're, we're doing our part. We're giving them food. Um, so you need to stop charging them interest. Right? Leadership by example. And verse 11, give them back what you took from them. Give them back their lands and their, their vineyards and all this kind of stuff. And he also speaks in verse 11 about the hundredth part. That's basically, the hundredth part was, um, it was really a, a compounding interest type of term. It was going on in the, in the world, in the Gentile world, and the Jewish people, who some of them who were wealthy, said, yeah, we could profit off of this. Well, they're doing it, so it's an accepted custom. How many times do you see Christians do things that are accepted in the world but are ungodly? Okay, but, but everyone else is doing it. But, but they're doing it in my peer group, but they're doing it. So what? Aren't we supposed to be salt and light? So this hundredth part, basically, the way it worked out was it was a 12% compounded interest rate and only ensured that the poor would get poorer. That's a lot. That's like credit card rate. Um, some of them are higher. And it was being charged for people just trying to buy food. Um, I remember as a new believer, I was 
talking, I was kind of in, involved in a conversation between two Christians, and one of them was kind of in the prosperity gospel, and it was all, every time he talked, it was about money. So the other Christian, I felt, was more balanced, said to him, you know, you're always, always talking about money. You know, what's this with money, money, money? And he says, well, why should Satan have all the money? So it's almost like this thing where, okay, the world's doing it. And, and quite frankly, that's it, not real Christianity. It's, it has no reflection in, in biblical support at all. But the guy was, and, and can I tell you something? It's not the possession or the retention of money. It's the love of money. And you, we know the difference. You know, money is a medium of exchange. You buy things. I'm not telling you to sell everything and, you know, just get rid of your money. But I am saying that money just is something we do business with. But there are some that look at money and they become extremely greedy. And I have to tell you, that is a very unflattering attribute to any Christian who's a greedy person. Okay, I've seen it. Verse 12. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to the promise. So the lender's response, we'll do it. But I wonder, well, I don't really wonder because I don't think they would have done it without intervention. This practice seemed to be going on for a while, and, and the people were just crying out. I don't think it was something new. Um, unfortunately, sometimes, even today, people have to be shamed and, you know, shamed. How could you do this to somebody? How could you, this isn't, this isn't how we live. This isn't part of our faith. How could you do this? So I believe that they were shamed. But Nehemiah takes some steps here. Now, I get the impression that these guys wouldn't have just accepted the rebuke. Hey, will you do this? Oh, yeah, sure, we'll stop doing it. Nehemiah took steps. Number one, he rebuked them, but he didn't stop there. Number two, he called an assembly, an official gathering, to make a formal case against them, but he didn't stop there. Number three, he tells them specifically what they needed to do. Not just do the right thing, it's a general term, but return these things. This is wrong, okay? Um, but he didn't stop there. Four, he brings them in front of the priest to take, make them take an oath. So before God, you're making this promise. And if you go back on that promise, you, you're going to stand in judgment of the Lord. You know, today some get intoxicated when it comes to wealth and money, and they change. I tell you what, if you ever do a study on, and I've said this before, on those who win the lottery, I think the lottery ruins people's lives. I don't play the lottery. Well, I, you know, even if I'm low on cash, the Lord has always provided for me. And I'm not judging anybody who does, but you ever see somebody who wins the big bucks, the millions? I mean, very few of them lead a normal life after that because money changes people. Now, there are some that I know that are wealthy, and I'm happy for them. And I'll never have that type of wealth. But you know what? They have big hearts, and they're generous, and they know how to manage the medium of exchange without make, letting it make them crazy. And then there are those who really don't have much, and they, <laughs> they're always putting on a show. You know, look at my clothes, look at my car, look at, and they're putting themselves into debt. And that's just foolish. That's just dumb. And that's not the lender's fault. That's not the creditor's fault. That's that person's fault because they want to give that impression that they, you know, look at me. I, you know, I'm, I'm hip. I got this. I got that. And uh, it's a shame because all that does is you're putting a noose around your neck when you do that. Live within your means. 
Right, this is great. I mean, this could have been written today for, for American culture. Okay, so let's go back to this. Um, listen, money shouldn't affect believers negatively, but I'm also not naive either. Just saying. There's an expression, that person would sell his own mother for the right price. And there are those out there. And maybe for the right price, they might. Like, nobody is safe from them when it comes to, you know, getting for themselves. They actually did studies on addictions, uh, brain scans, right? Drugs, alcohol, porn, sex addictions. Do you know that, that the love of money and greed affects the same neural patterns in the brain? It's the brain secretes the same neurotransmitters, dopamine, as the other addictions. It is literally something they get hooked on, right? this whole money thing. And I tell you what, I know people that are scammers. They live their whole life just going from one scam to the other, taking money and promising they'll give it. And they go, I'd, I'd have anxiety. I couldn't sleep. You know what I'm saying? If that was my life, I'd be like, I'd be, I'd be up at night looking at the ceiling. They're going to come for me. Is, is it going to be, you know, you don't sign notices that come in the mail because they need your signature. Well, what's this? Listen, you can keep all that stuff, man. Uh, you know, I drive a simple car. I have a simple existence. And uh, I sleep really well at night. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so, there we go. Verse 13. Ne- Nehemiah, what does he do? He takes his robe and he shakes the folds of his robe and he basically, it's really prophetic. Um, you know, you guys took an oath, you promised, you, you were before the people. Um, if you don't do this, the way I'm shaking my robe, well, let God shake you from all your possessions. And God can do that. God can do that if you don't do the right thing by these poor people. Verse 14, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brethren ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who had been before me laid burdens on the people and they took from the bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which is prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also, fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions." because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So Nehemiah has this unselfish example. Remember, Nehemiah is a politician. He's a governor appointed by the king from Persia, from Shusang, to go to Jerusalem to be a governor for this appointed time. He's a politician, okay, appointed by a monarch. However, he would not allow himself to live in luxury if it meant hardship for the people. Do a little study on our founding fathers and the rules that they set up. They actually had self-appointed term limits. George Washington and others, they would serve, and then after a certain time, they would leave. Um, They also limited what they would take, and uh, they took very little from the people. My, how things have changed. You know, some politicians today are literally carried out in in a casket. They... 
I don't know how they keep fooling the people to vote for them over decades. Put some new blood in there, man. And honestly, I think, <laughs> I think that Americans have a high tolerance for corruption, especially New Jerseyans. Right? You're laughing. This is how we roll in New Jersey. My thing is just, I don't care. Republican, Democrat, they've been there too long. They're getting stale. Kick them out. Vote them out. You know? But you see this scandal after scandal. It's, uh, it's disgusting. You know, we hear today about the media, politicians, even religious leaders telling us about the poor. And I believe that we should care for the poor. And you know what? Some things that we do, we're not going to be able to write off, but who cares? God sees it. It's not about that. Arthur Brooks uh, wrote a book called Who Really Cares? And he examined who really gives the most money to the poor in the United States. I love this. Now, the demographic that he found was not the demographic that he was from. Instead of burying the evidence, he published the book and received a lot of criticism for it. What Arthur Brooks found is that average, hard-working, church-going Christians gave the greatest percentage of their income without being big mouths about it in the media. Right? Now, let's talk about percentages. If you are a billionaire and you give $100,000, that could seem like, wow, I could never do that. But the percentage is infinitesimal. So what he found was that Christians were giving a good percentage of what they were bringing in. Even though it didn't look like much, it was still a higher percentage overall. Now, it reminds me of, and again, I love Jesus for so many reasons. He just was an awesome teacher. Him and his disciples are watching people go to the temple, and an old woman goes up and has two mites, which are worth pretty much nothing, plink, plink, and puts them in the, the treasury. And the disciples don't even notice this. They're watching the bigwigs come in and, and flaunt what they're giving. And Jesus says, I tell you, she's given more than any of them. And they were like, what? That's usually the response from the disciples when Jesus would teach. What? My paraphrase. He said she gave out of her poverty, they gave out of their wealth. So Arthur Brooks, you know, you hear the loudmouths on TV. You see their pictures. If you really think they're a champion for the poor, do a little research on them. Find out what they give, what percentage they give. You might be shocked because Brooks was shocked as well. The irony today is that, I hate to say this, but poverty is an industry. Many people are getting wealthy over poor people, but the ones who aren't changing their situation are the poor. Okay? Keep an eye on some of these politicians who have the loudest mouths, media pundits. See what they make, see what they give. It's very easy to find out. Don't be fooled. A lot of things you see on TV are lies. Okay, verse 17. So Nehemiah funds this great feast that who could eat? Well, he had up to 150 people, right? His, but here's, check this out. What, could have, what he could have done, again, was what some of the lenders were doing. He could have taken these provisions and sold it at a high price and made a fortune. He just gave it away. He just gave it away. All right, last point about politicians. <laughs> you know, there was a guy who ran some years ago as a third-party candidate, and he was a little odd. He wasn't savvy. He didn't speak well. But the guy was right on. It was Ross Perot. I don't agree with everything the guy said, but I, I love economics. I have a lot of fun with economics. And he basically talked about the special interest groups Right? And the lobbyists 
who are sitting right outside the halls of Congress, and they buy these, these politicians. A lot of laws that are made are not a, for us, for the people that they supposedly represent. But the lobbyists, they get them into office, they pay them big money for their can- campaigns, and they owe them. And he was, and here's the funny part. They made him look like a moron on TV. They made him look like a complete idiot. But me being a, having a background in economics, I'm like, the guy's right. You know, politicians, the way they're bought, the way they get into office and they pay them back, but they don't consider us. We need to pray for our leaders and pray for our countries because I don't think it's going to get much better. I really don't. Verse 19. This is interesting because this Nehemiah, and I believe that he had a few letters. That's just speculation. Don't say Pastor Joe said as if it was doctrine. Some of the stuff, again, he sends to, to the king. Hey, king, you paid a lot of money for this project. Money's being spent wisely. Some of it was a diary. He speaks about himself. Some of the things are personal. We eventually get what he has. As Of course, it's, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's sacred scripture. But he says, he just, his only concern, I'll read 19 again, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now, he just wanted God to remember him for his just altruism, his benevolence, you know, just, and again, I believe it, he said it was because of the fear of God. And I'm going to tell you something, when we fear God, we don't fear man. When we fear God, we tend to do the right thing. So, I've actually read some commentaries where they kind of slam Nehemiah, and I just don't agree with the commentaries. Well, you know, he's boasting, he's bragging. I don't look at it that way. I believe that because of his convictions, he's like, you know what, Lord, as a man, this is the best I can do. I just would like you to remember me that. Remember, this is before the cross as well. And what a great life's paradigm. Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Are we seeking God above all else, Christians? Because one day, Christians, we're all going to stand before God and give an account. What do we do with our lives? Right? What do we do with our time, our finances, our energy? Also, there was a great injustice, and Nehemiah couldn't stand idly by and watch it. And what was harder, it came from within. God may be calling on some of you, as you're listening to this message, that you know there's a pending issue, and it's from within. It's a family issue, it's a, a peer group Christian issue, it's something that God is trying to let you know that he's called you for such a time as this. And we put it out of our head because, boy, this could really cause a lot of turmoil for me. I see a lot of Christians point the finger at the world. It's almost like that, you know, look at the, look at the flashlight, look at the bulb, don't look at me. You know, look, look what's going on over here, look at the world, look what the atheists are doing. We're supposed to be winning the atheists, not criticizing them. They don't know any better. I see Christians point the finger at the world, but turn their heads when they see things happening within the body of Christ, because it's too difficult to tackle. Because you know what? That takes real courage. So I just pray that when God calls us to step up to the plate and do the right thing, that we're ready, and that we're willing, and that we seek Him for guidance. Let's pray. You've been listening to to every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. 
On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.